Hi there, we really hope you enjoy this teaching from the Message Trust. To find out more about all the exciting things we're doing, check out our website, message.org.uk. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here with you guys. Um, This uh, seminar obviously is about compassion for the poor and particularly around the myth of the, uh, what I guess the media would call the undeserving poor. Whether there are some people in our society who don't deserve our help um, and some people who do, uh, the fact that I've just said the myth of the undeserving poor might give you a clue as to where I'm going to go with it. Uh, Hopefully it won't be any big surprises. Um, Jubilee Plus, the uh, charity that I work for, we run um, surveys every couple of years to find out what churches across the country are doing in their communities. And uh, a couple of years ago, we ran a survey and we found out that churches across the UK are um, spending collectively £393 million on projects that serve the poorest and the most vulnerable in our communities. And at the same time, there are over a million volunteers who give their time to projects um, in churches or church-related projects that help people uh, who are struggling, are facing poverty, are marginalised and in need. And so that's astonishing. I think it's amazing. You wonder what would happen to our society if the churches stopped putting all that money and stopped putting all that people power into um, things that serve their communities and particularly the most vulnerable in their communities. But I think what's really interesting in our nation is that poverty isn't clear-cut at all. You know, for many of us, we can see images on our TV screens of children who are literally starving to death in Africa and something happens in our hearts where we are rightly moved with compassion. We rightly think, oh my goodness, how can this happen? What can I do? Is there any way I can help? It seems too overwhelming. But then in the UK, we're also confronted with programs on our TVs like Benefit Street. Any of you watched that a few years ago? Which basically paint a picture of people who are um, scrounging off the system. People who are skivers who do not want to work and will just take whatever money they can get. And it's your money and it's my money. And it's not right. And actually, we're painted with those pictures that people in poverty in this country have made their own beds so they should just lie in it and we shouldn't have to help them. I think this is completely unbiblical. I don't think it is God's heart at all. But we are uh, living in a society that has kind of swallowed this message whole and even for some of us who think no I disagree with that sometimes we can find in our own attitudes I find it in my own heart sometimes some of the ways I think and I I catch myself and I think I have bought in it's like I've 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 not I don't even read the daily mail but I somehow it's crept into my heart and my mind sometimes other bad newspapers are available (laughs) I shouldn't just pick on them for reasons that I'm going to come to So I think, anyway, poverty in our country is complex because should we help everyone who needs help? If someone comes to you and says, I'm struggling financially, um, I need your help, as Christians, should should our automatic response be, okay, let me help you? Or should it be, well, let me just talk to you a little bit. How did you get into this situation? Was it your own fault or are you a victim of circumstances? Let me just weigh up whether you're worthy of my help or not. 
And I think even if we don't struggle with our own hearts and minds in this, people around us do. People around us will say, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you giving your life to what you're giving it to? And the sad thing is it won't just be politicians or the media or um, the non-Christians around you who ask you that question. Often it's Christians. Often it's people in our churches who are saying, I think you are going too far. You have taken bits of the Bible and you've made them your hobby horse. Do you get in these conversations with people? Is it just me? I have conversations with people all the time where I feel like um, they want to kind of almost, I don't know, it's weird. It's those conversations where people, they're saying to you, you're going too far. You know, there are other things that are more important than this. And and people have to live with the consequences of their actions and, and almost forgetting that we're not living with the consequences of our actions are we and I think so often when I get into those conversations I feel like the person talking to me is is basically trying to exonerate themselves they're trying to make themselves feel better I had someone come up to me recently when I spoke in a church and I spoke on God's heart for those in poverty and someone came up to me at the end and this pretty much happens every time I speak on this subject in a church someone came up to me at the end and said no you know we have a welfare system that picks people up, we don't need to do it. So I was like, oh, so you don't think there's any role for the church then in, in, in caring for the poorest? And they were like, no, no, we've, we've got to this place where we've, you know, Christians worked hard, along with others too, to get a good welfare system so we don't have to worry about it. I'm like, I don't know what Bible you're reading, but it's not the same one that I'm reading. Sorry, that's a little bit harsh. Maybe. I don't know. But, you know, I think it's partly because we get these newspaper headlines that tell us that tell us that people are just scrounging, that people are on the take, that people don't want to work, that people, you know, it's, it's their own fault. Headlines like, um, here's a few, um, mansions for scroungers. It's about houses being provided for people who are in need. Um, Four million scrounging families in Britain. I want to make some joke about which end of the financial spectrum those families are on, but I shouldn't. Uh, 75% on sick are skiving. And then I think my uh, the one that for me is probably the worst of all is, do you guys remember um, Mick Philpot? He's a guy who set fire to his house, and I think five of his children died in that fire. And one of our... Daily newspapers used the headline, Vile Product of Welfare UK. It basically made this link between this awful, despicable thing that he had done and the fact that he was on benefits, as if, as if that's what it is, as if, well, people on benefits set fire to their houses and kill their kids. It's, it's nuts, isn't it? And yet a headline like that goes unchallenged and, and get, they get away with it and it's out there and then people take it in and they spout it out. You know, it's funny, people say I'm not influenced by the media, but actually, for those, you know, for Christians, we know that we're told to meditate on scripture, aren't we? Well, the reason we meditate on stuff is so that it sinks into us, so that it seeps down deep. So if you uh, read the same newspaper every day or you watch the same TV station every day or you get your news from the same online source every day, you are meditating on that and it is going to seep in and it is going to influence what then comes out of you. 
you know, with these newspaper headlines, you might think, well, these are extreme examples. But um, when we were about, myself and um, a guy called Martin Charlesworth, we were about to write a book called The Myth of the Undeserving Poor. We did some research into newspaper headlines. We actually analysed 390 newspaper articles. It was painstaking. And we, this was... Um, around the time that Benefit Street first aired. And so we looked at the BBC Online, ITV Online, The Guardian, The Independent, The Huffington Post, The Daily Mail, The Sun, The Daily Mirror, The Telegraph and The Times. And of those 390 articles that were all about poverty in this nation or benefits um, and poverty in this nation, we found, this might surprise you, we found that 20% of them were negative towards people in need. That's a quite a low number, isn't it? But over half of those negative articles were news items which are supposed to be impartial and yet were negative about people on benefits or people in poverty. It was twice as many as those that were positive. Like I say, they were news, so we were expecting to find neutrality across the board, but we didn't. And, you know, it might be that you think, oh, well, yeah, but those negative ones, they were probably in some of those newspapers, so I could probably tell you which ones, you know, they were in. But actually... What we, what we found to our shock was that it was actually some of the newspapers and outlets that we might consider to be kinder that gave the least space for anyone in poverty to defend themselves. 78% of all the articles we looked at had no space whatsoever for anyone in poverty to tell their own story. And actually, interestingly, just to counteract what I've already said about the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail was the one that gave the most space to people in poverty to tell their story. Usually so that they could kind of hang themselves with their own words, but nevertheless, they did at least speak to people facing poverty and ask their opinions. We don't give space to the voices of those on the margins in our mainstream media. And... It's important because if we don't give space to other voices, to a mixture of voices, then it helps us to kind of um, bed down in an us and them mentality. If I don't know people who are different to me, chances are I'm going to fear them or I'm going to resent them or I'm going to just feel like I can't relate to you in any way. The problem with this is that when one group gets to raise their voices loudest, then it silences the voice of others. Many groups of people feel marginalised by the media. A lot of Christians do. They say we're marginalised by the media. But when it happens to people who are facing poverty or who are in the margins, we need to be more troubled by it. We need to be more disturbed by it. Because it, it basically it strikes at the heart of a commitment to the common good because it, it, it reinforces this idea, well, you've got into difficulty because you made bad decisions and I can't relate to you because I'm over here making good decisions. So you need to just get on with your life and my life has nothing to do with your life. It, it fragments, it fractures society. One journalist describes this kind of idea of not letting the voices of people in poverty or in the margins uh, kind of appear in the media as it leading to a gradual erosion of empathy. I think 
when it comes to the media, many of us, I think this is, it strikes me as being particularly true of Christians in some ways of thinking, well, I'm, I'm above that because I read my Bible. I, I don't get influenced by the media because, you know, I, that's not what I'm allowing to shape me. We can think, well, this is just noisy background to me. But actually the media even decide which issues make it into the public domain. Do you remember the, um, some of us in the room will remember the devastating famine in Ethiopia in the 1980s? You know, the BBC was the first mainstream media outlet to report on it, which it did at the end of 1984. International action then took place afterwards, and Live Aid, which some of you remember, took place in 1985. People talk about the Ethiopia famine of 1984. You know, the famine had already been going for two years by the time the BBC reported on it. Millions of people had died, and yet we in the Western world refer to it as the famine that happened in 1984. It didn't happen in 1984. That's when we were told it was happening. That's when the media started reporting on it. No one knew about it. That's why international aid didn't come earlier. That's why live aid didn't happen earlier, because we didn't know. The media is really powerful. I'm saying this from the point of view, I should say, I used to be a journalist. Um, That's what I trained as, that's what I worked as. So I feel a little bit more at liberty to criticise the media because I I feel like, well, I'm kind of criticising my own. Um, I think, as well, the way the media frame issues is really interesting to us. You know, whenever um, there's a terrorist attack, for example, you know, if it's someone who isn't white who shoots people or sets off a bomb, it's a terrorist attack. When it's someone who is white, it's usually crazy lone gunmen. We are presented these things in ways that are designed to tell us a story. And if we're not wise to it, and if we're not following it, then often we'll just believe that story without even knowing it's happened to us, without even knowing that it's, it's seeped in. You know, one of the things we wanted to do at Jubilee Plus is look at, well, you know, are we really influenced by the media? What we found was, it was, re- it was really shocking, actually, because we did a survey of Christians, and we found that, actually, most Christians were more likely to be influenced by the media they consume on a weekly or more basis than they were by what the Bible says. I, I've, I found that shocking but unsurprising, I guess. It was really interesting that when we looked at um, how we perceive certain issues, our media preference affects things like how broadly we would define poverty. It affects things like whether we think that large gaps between the rich and the poor are morally wrong. It affects our assessment even of the level of poverty in Britain today based on the media we read. Because, you know, in one sense, we should expect all the Christians to be on the same page, shouldn't we? I mean, I know that we wouldn't, but if we're, if we're all just coming from a biblical standpoint, then in theory, we should all be on the same page. And yet we saw these massive differences of opinion about things like whether a big gap between rich and poor is morally wrong. And again, you could look at it along lines of if someone ticked, well, I get all my news from the BBC on a daily or weekly basis, or I get all my news from the Daily Mail, or I get all my news from the Guardian you could predict what their views were going to be on any issue, more than the fact that they were a Christian. 
I think I just want to chuck out that kind of it is a sobering challenge. What shapes what we believe? And you might be thinking, well, we're you know we're at this conference, of course, of course we're with you. But actually, I, I, like I say, I find it in my own heart some of the time. You know, um, a few years ago, I went to do um, to be interviewed for a Christian leadership training course, and. I found this out after the fact, but I was sitting in the interview and I was asked a few questions and apparently about 10 minutes into the interview, the guy interviewing me, church leader, had already figured that I probably wouldn't get much out of the leadership training course, that I would probably enjoy it to a certain extent, but I probably wouldn't have too much to contribute to it and I probably wouldn't get as much out of it as other people. And the whole reason that he assumed that is because of the way I talk. And so 10 minutes into the interview, he says to me, I see you're only going to be doing this part-time. What will you be doing the rest of the time? And I said, oh, I'm going to do my master's degree in political communication. Apparently, he nearly fell off his chair. And he, you know, to his credit, he's told people this story, and I know this story, and he's allowed me to use this story because he's actually, no, I'm ashamed of myself that I thought that of you. But do you know what's even more troubling than him doing that to me is that, even with my background, which I'll tell you more about in the next session, I do the same thing to other people too. We make snap judgments about people based on what they're wearing, based on how they speak, based on a couple of things they might tell us about themselves from the outset. And we make these snap judgments about how valuable they are, about how much of my time are you worth. It's really sinful. And I I don't know. Some of you are nodding, so I'm hoping... This could just be a massive confession session for me. But I'm I'm assuming some of you are with me. So I think it's worth us asking, are our attitudes more shaped by what we read and watch and listen to? Or are they more shaped by the things we read in the Bible? You know, wherever we look in the Bible, we see God has always been especially concerned about the poorest. He always has been. There are literally hundreds of verses about poverty and justice in the Bible. I've got that Bible, the Poverty and Justice Bible, where if you're really lazy, it just highlights them all for you, so you don't have to put in the work to find them for yourself. Um, I'm not advocating that, I'm just saying. Um, But, you know, you can barely turn a page without a verse being highlighted in that version of the Bible. I love it that in the Old Testament, you know, when I, when I first became a Christian, I didn't really understand much about anything, to be honest with you. Um, and I, so I had this idea for my first couple of years as a Christian that uh, the God of the Old Testament was all about rules and regulations and, you know, you do this or I'll smite you and all that stuff. And then you get to Jesus and Jesus is lovely and compassionate and a bit like a fluffier version of God, if you like. He's the, he's the soft one. He's the one we can come to. And, and I totally missed the fact that God's heart has been the same throughout all of human history. Uh, and before that. But, you know, when we look at the law in the Old Testament, there's so many beautiful um, instructions to the people of God about how to provide for the poorest among them. Things like the law of gleaning. So farmers, you know, they're going along and they're picking up their grain and some of it would fall by the wayside And their tendency might be to think, oh, I better go and pick it all up because uh, I've got to feed my family and I want to sell some to make a living. Um, But God says, don't do that. God says, leave it behind. What falls by the wayside, leave it behind for the widow, the orphan, the foreigner. It's an interesting and troubling one for some in our society, isn't it? 
for those who are in poverty. Let them, let them have it. Let them be fed. It says that wages should be paid on time and not deferred. It says that interest shouldn't be charged on loans. Imagine that in our society if interest wasn't charged on loans. You know, I know that uh, Wonga have gone uh, bust now. But, you know, being able to charge 4,000% interest on a loan, it is criminal. It is enslaving. It traps people. But if we did it God's way, he says, don't charge interest on loans. He also said to his people, don't make profit on food. I'd be really fascinated to go into a supermarket and see all the prices marked down to non-profit making prices. I love the fact that in God's provision in the Old Testament, there's the Sabbath year, the seventh year. And every time it comes around, this is in Deuteronomy 15, debts got cancelled. As someone who has been in um, large amounts of debt in the past and felt like I might never work my way out of it, I wish I'd lived in a a people group and a society where I'd known that the longest possible time I'll have to wait is seven years and then my debts get cancelled and freedom comes. And you know, the year of Jubilee, it's why the charity I work for is called Jubilee Plus, because the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25, every 50th year, not only were your debts cancelled, But if you'd had to put yourself into slavery to make ends meet and to survive, you got your freedom back. If you'd had to give up your land that had maybe been in your family for generations, in the year of Jubilee, you got your land back. It's like this massive reset button where God says, I won't let the rich go on getting richer and richer and richer at the expense of the poor. And I won't let the poor ever be in a hopeless state because they will always know that they've only got to wait for the Sabbath year or the year of Jubilee and freedom's coming. It's beautiful, isn't it? What does it tell us about God? What an amazing, wonderful God we serve that he would be so concerned about the poorest. And you know, in none of these rules does it say if it was their fault that they had to do it, then don't release them. If they got into debt because they made stupid decisions, then don't cancel it. It doesn't say that. It is a blanket rule for all people, and not just for the people of God, but for those who joined them too. And also what I think is even more amazing about it is that God doesn't just say, let, them, let the slaves go, give them their land back and cancel the debts, and let's hope they can make a better go of it next time. It says, no, when you let them go, supply them liberally from your flock and your threshing floor and your wine press. What God is saying is give the people that you're letting go the best opportunity, the best possible opportunity. It's not like off you go, go on, yeah, but well, you know, you made a mess of it last time, but let's hope you do better now. It's no, I want to give you every chance of succeeding at life. I want to give you every chance of being able to support yourself and support your family and make a living. It's really beautiful. And, you know, obviously when we come to Jesus, we we see it as well, that Jesus spent so much of his time with those in chronic need. You know, some people think that what's happening at Eden or what's happening in churches like mine where, you know, we're running projects that serve um, the most vulnerable in my community, that that's just for some Christians, That's just for those of you who God has said you've got to go and do it. Caring for the poorest and the most vulnerable is not a departmental thing that's for some Christians and not for others. It is not an optional extra. It is central to the gospel. Jesus started his whole ministry saying, you know, 
I've come to bring good news to the poor. This scripture is fulfilled in me, in me arriving. And in Matthew 25, he says one of the key hallmarks for whether we're following him really is how we respond to the hungry, those who are in prison, those who are sick, those who are strangers. Concern for the poorest isn't supposed to be an afterthought. It's not supposed to be something we, we just do when we get around to it. It's in the very heart of God. It's central to the gospel. It's not something that's to be left to a few enthusiastic people of Eden who will move, move in. It's for everyone. And I know that means that for many of us, our biggest struggle can be with those who aren't doing it. But, you know, God wants us to show mercy to them as well. I'm going to talk about that more, I think, um, after lunch. You know, for me, there are two stories in the Bible that I think have particularly helped me to grapple with this issue of do some people deserve our help and do some not? And one of them is in 2 Samuel 9. Uh, where King David asks if there's anyone left of the house of Saul who he can show God's kindness to. And he's heard, he hears that there's the son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, who's lame in both feet. And it says that um, when Mephibosheth came to David, David said, don't be afraid, I'm going to show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul mirroring what we've just seen in the Old Testament law. And you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? But Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. You know, it tells us in 2 Samuel 4 that how Mephibosheth um, became lame in both feet was that he was in an accident when he was five years old. It says that his nurse picked him up to flee to safety with him and they fell and that he hadn't been able to walk since he was five. So, you know, if I think about someone like Mephibosheth, maybe someone like Mephibosheth sitting here today and saying, help me, I, I need food, I can't support myself. And I say, well, what happened to you? And he says, oh, I was in this horrible accident when I was five. I've just never been able to um, work. I've never been able to support myself. Something in me naturally does feel compassion for someone like that. You know, he is in need through no fault of his own. He is totally a victim of circumstances. Also, he's so humble and grateful for David's kindness. You know, he says, what am I? A dead dog like me. Why would you notice me? But then, you know, in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, you know, we know many of us will know the story well, won't we? I just find it really interesting because it says, you know, once the son had said, father, give me my share of the estate, he, he went off. And it says, um, after he'd spent, what does it say? It says he set off for a distant country and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. He went and worked with the pigs. But it says when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'm going to go back. You know the story, the father runs to him and welcomes him back and embraces him and celebrates. But imagine with me, if you will, that the prodigal son runs in through that door now and says, can you guys help me? I'm starving to death. And we go, wow, what happened to you? And he says, well, I squandered all my wealth. I was really rich, but I just wanted to party it up a bit. You know, the older brother later in the story tells us that some of his money went on prostitutes. So imagine that, he comes in and he goes, I'm starving to death, will you help me? And we say, well, what did you do? And he's like, well, I spent my money on prostitutes. 
you guys might be way more compassionate than me, but what happens in my heart is something very different to what would happen when Mephibosheth comes in and asks. You guys might be way more godly, but I know that for me, something in my heart's a bit like, you did what? And now you want me to help you? Well, I'd want to be pretty sure that he'd realised the error of his ways. I would. I would want to be like, Okay, you know, I will help you, but you have understood, right, that you did a bad thing. You've understood this is your fault. I would really want to make sure, you know, just that he was getting it, that he'd done wrong and that it was his own fault and that he should be really grateful for my help because I would deign to help someone who'd made such bad decisions. I don't know about you, I see this stuff in my heart and it is not godly. It's not godly. I know that I wouldn't particularly struggle to help a Mephibosheth-type person, but I totally struggle to help a prodigal son, someone in that situation. And I think for our society, this is so relevant, isn't it? Because we are told, these people deserve your help and these people don't. You know, our society seems to have a bit of a sliding scale of compassion, really. You know, if you think about people who might come and ask you for help... If it's a widowed mother of three, how do you feel? If it's a homeless person asking for change on the streets, what if it's a homeless person asking for change on the streets while feeding their dog and sipping from a can of lager? An asylum seeker fleeing persecution or someone who's moved here because they're like, well, I can't earn enough money in my own country and you've got the NHS and education and stuff, so I wanted to come to your country. I think if we're honest, stuff happens in our hearts and it's not the same for every single person most of us will have a cut off point for our compassion even if we're people who are giving ourselves to being compassionate to those on the margins all the time you know for some of us it's just people who aren't grateful I've got a woman who helps out in the food bank that I'm involved with and she said that when people don't say thank you she wants to run out the door and take the food back off them and say well if you're not going to say thank you you can't have it how often do we do that, though? You know, do you know if you hold a door open for someone and they don't say thank you? Something in me wants to, like, pull them back through the door and slam it in their face. It's not nice. <laughs> and you know, like, when you let, if you're driving and you let someone go and, like, they don't do that little polite wave thing you're supposed to do? I have found myself going... Because <laughs> I want them to know you're supposed to be grateful. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with me? <laughs> I think for me this really hit home. Um, when I was a journalist, I lived in China for a year and we were told um, not to give money to street kids because, well, they didn't actually tell us why. The first time I gave money to a street kid, I found out why. It's because suddenly you would be overwhelmed with about 40 or 50 kids. And I'm pretty short, so most of them are about my height anyway. And I, at the, when my, in my first couple of months in China, didn't speak any of the language, so couldn't communicate, I haven't got enough money to give to everyone here. And they didn't speak any English, so it's just like literally hanging off me. So you learn to kind of harden your heart. You learn to not help kids on the street because you knew what would happen if you did. But after I'd been there a few months, I was out one night uh, just drinking with some friends and this kid came up to me, about like six or seven years old. He was absolutely filthy and his clothes had holes in and they were dirty and they were hanging off him. And he asked me for some money and he smiled and he looked so happy. And it really shocked me because it, it didn't fit. Like, 
the smile on his face just didn't fit the rest of him. And I, I sort of looked around, couldn't see any other kids, and something in me was moved, so I gave him a bit of money, and I watched him go over to uh, a street vendor and buy, like, a rice cake, just like a circular, you know, kind of rice cake thing. And in my head, I'm thinking, oh, I'm, I'm, oh this is nice. I'm, I've done a good thing, you know. I mean, not literally thinking that, but you know the thoughts that go through our heads. You feel a bit proud of yourself, and I was glad that he was going to eat because I'd been so generous with my... 50p or whatever I'd given him and I saw him then take this rice cake to a woman who I assume was his mum and she broke off a small piece and just in a few seconds I was thinking this is nice she's going to get a little bit as well I'm such a good person I've helped two people and then I saw her give the kid the little piece and she ate the big piece and you know what I was outraged I was just like, has she just taken food from a starving child? I did not stop to wonder whether I might have been the second person that day who'd helped them. And maybe the child had already eaten and she hadn't. Didn't cross my mind. I didn't cross my mind that maybe it's like, you know, if you go on a plane, they say uh, put your own oxygen mask on before someone else's. Maybe she had to take them somewhere to safety for that night. And she was so weak that she didn't. She was like, if I don't eat, we're not going to be safe tonight. Literally didn't cross my mind. I thought I didn't think, you know, I didn't even think how desperate would you have to be if you literally were doing what I thought you were doing? How desperate would you have to be if you were eating food that was meant for a starving child? None of that crossed my mind. I literally pole vaulted over compassion about as fast as it's possible to do it and was angry and indignant and thought to myself, if I'd known that was going to happen, I wouldn't have given that kid that money. It's bad, isn't it? And do you know what's even worse is that it was years before I started to realise, it's years before that story came back to me and God started to really talk to me about what's going on in your heart there you know God brought that story back to me I think to remind me that we can so easily write people off as being undeserving in an instant and in that particular story I didn't just write off the woman I wrote off the kid because I was like I wouldn't have helped him either if I'd known that was going to happen but when we look at the stories of Mephibosheth and the prodigal son you know we see these two guys who stand in stark contrast to one another one of them, you know, victim of circumstances, it's not his fault. It happened to him when he was a kid. And the other one, totally his own fault, made loads of bad decisions. And we look at them and they're in contrast to one another. But, you know, the response of the father figure in both stories is exactly the same. It's exactly the same. Both King David and the father of the prodigal son were looking out to show kindness it says that David asked himself the question, who is there left? Who is there who I can show God's kindness to? What a wonderful question for us to start our days with. God, who today can I show your kindness to? It's not who today deserves my help. It's not who today am I going to come across who's made all the right decisions and just had a run of bad luck. It's God, who can I show your kindness to today? And you know, it's remarkable that David showed that kindness to Mephibosheth because you know, his granddad, Saul, had tried to kill David more than once. Mephibosheth had no claim on David's help. 
And in the other story, you know, the father spotted his son running while he was still a long way off. And his immediate response was to show kindness and mercy. Because, you know, the compassion and mercy of Jesus is always based on who he is and not on the person in front of him. And that's what we get invited into. In Luke 6, verse 36, Jesus says, be merciful just as your father is merciful. We get invited to be like him. We get invited to be those who show mercy to people without worrying about whether they deserve it or not, but just worrying about, well, who am I and who's my father? It's a totally different starting place. Society says, um, tell me why you deserve my help. For the Christian, we're actually not called to look at the person in front of us at all. We're called to look at Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't put any conditions on his acts of mercy. Even being thankful wasn't a condition. You know, it says that he healed 10 and only one came back to thank him. We don't then read in the next verse, so Jesus chased down the other nine and said, you guys aren't healed anymore because you weren't grateful. Jesus doesn't seem overly concerned about that. He just seems concerned about being who he is. He's the healer, so he heals. You know, when we see Jesus feed the 4,000 and the 5,000, it doesn't say that he said to the disciples, go around and means test them first. You know, there would have been some among the crowds who were there um, who should have thought about bringing some food with them. You know, some of these people had been following Jesus around for a while and they should have known You know, he can talk. He's got stuff to teach us. You know, it might be a long day. Why didn't they bring a packed lunch? Jesus doesn't say to the disciples, those who should have known better, push them over to that side. They're not getting any. Also, there would have been those who were capable of going and getting their own food. They could have made it to the villages. They could have gone. Jesus doesn't say, send those ones away. They can go and sort themselves out. There would have been some who were there who had no intention of ever following Jesus or believing in him. There would have been some who were there who just wanted to see a spectacle, who just wanted to see a sign and a wonder. Jesus doesn't say, right, you and you and you and you, you. You're not even genuine. You just want a miracle so you guys aren't getting fed. He doesn't do that. He doesn't weed those out who were just there for a free meal even. You know, because he did it, he did this miracle twice. So the second time around, you've got to, you've got to count on the fact there'll be people like me there who will do anything for free food. You know, he's done it once. Maybe think, oh, do you, do you know what Jesus did? He fed all those people. If we hang around with him, maybe we'll get some food. No, they all got fed, irrespective of their faith level, their social status, their ability to get their own food. And I'm not trying to say we shouldn't think carefully about the sort of help we offer. But the question is, are we ever allowed to write anyone off as undeserving of our help? And I would submit that as Christians, the answer is no. We're not allowed to. You know, the Bible doesn't shy away from the fact that there are various reasons why people get themselves into poverty. God's, God's not like hiding from that fact. God knows it. If you read through um, Psalm 107, we won't do it now because of time. But in Psalm 107, it talks about four groups of people who cried out to God in their distress. And two of them, I think it's pretty clear that they got themselves in that situation. Well, in fact, one of them, it says they were foolish. And the other one, I think it says they were rebellious. And then the other two are those who you think, well, actually, they just seem to be trying to make a home for themselves, make a living for themselves. And yet again, 
with all four of them, it says that when they called to the Lord in, his, in their distress, he delivered them. God seems to go straight for deliverance, straight for mercy, straight for compassion. And he invites us to do that too. God's mercy is never founded on what someone has done or hasn't done. Aren't you glad? <laughs> I am. You know, the funny thing about the cut-off point for our compassion is that it doesn't even make any logical sense, even if it made biblical sense. Because, you know, if you grow up in poverty in this country, it affects the single biggest factor that will affect your life chances in a whole range of issues. So if you are a child growing up in poverty in Britain today, it is likely to affect your health, your educational attainment, your life expectancy, your job prospects your chances of going into prison or prostitution, even when you'll die. So at what age do we switch off our compassion? Because, you know, any one of us in any church building across the land, if a five-year-old runs in and says, I'm starving, will you help me? We're going to want to help. I mean, you'd have to be pretty hard-hearted to say no, wouldn't you? Most of us wouldn't say to the child, well, how'd you get in this mess in the first place? We'd assume some adult had caused it and we'd help. So why, when someone turns 18, do we think what well, something magic happens to them on their 18th birthday where they then bear no relation to the childhood they've had? Or is it 25? Or is it 30? Or is it 40? Or is it 45? What age is it where someone wakes up one day and says, regardless of this childhood I've had, today I'm going to make good choices in all the areas the nice middle class people make good choices? It doesn't make any sense, does it? And yet somehow we find it easy to be compassionate for children and really hard to be compassionate for adults. But you know what? A biblical attitude is not, you made your bed. Jesus has never said that to anyone. He hasn't. Even the Pharisees, he didn't say that to them. It says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Society be treats people based on their behavior. Christians are called to treat people based on God's behavior. His character. We're not looking at the same things as the world. There's a Billy Graham quote that I love that says, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. I find that I like to do the other jobs in that list. I quite like a bit of conviction, as long as I'm bringing it to someone else and they're not bringing it to me. You know, there's something in us, I think, which really just likes to help people see the error of their ways. I wouldn't have done it the way you're doing it. Oh, dear. Oh, yeah, I knew you shouldn't have done it that way. It says it's God's job to judge. I quite like to do God's job for him. It just comes naturally to me. It does. I'm just being honest with you. It does. I, I, I don't have to lean into being judgmental. It does not require any effort on my part. It just happens. But it says, no, it's my job to love. And to be merciful just as my father is merciful, that I have to lean into hard. That does not happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen by listening to talks about it. It doesn't happen by giving talks about it. It doesn't happen by writing books about it. It happens by pressing hard into God and saying, God, make me so mindful of the mercy that you have shown me that I don't dare judge someone else 
because I'm so aware of what I have been saved from and what I've been saved for that I want to press in and be, I want to be the most merciful person that anyone around me meets. I'm not, by the way. I know loads of people who are really, really good at this, but that's what I'm aiming for. I want my non-Christian friends and families to think of me as the kindest, most compassionate and generous person they know. But that only happens if I do stuff. It only happens if my attitudes are different to the world around me. It only happens if I'm willing to go further in terms of giving my money and my time and my compassion and my energy and my effort. That's the only way that they will see the mercy of Jesus in me is if I am the most merciful person around You know, we get to show God's kindness. So often when we read the stories of Mephibosheth and the prodigal son in the Bible, we put ourselves in the place of Mephibosheth or in the place of the prodigal son. And that's really helpful because um, that's, you know, I think how we're supposed to read those stories. The father figure is supposed to be like God and we are supposed to see ourselves as those who've got invited to the king's table when we didn't deserve it. Those who've been restored to the family where we didn't deserve it. But you know what? Because we're Christians, our role in the story has changed. We were Mephibosheth and we were the prodigal son, but now we're not. We now get to be like the father. That's the invitation that's extended to us. We get to be like the father. We get to show mercy to people around us, whether they deserve it or not. In fact, those who a society would say they don't deserve your help are the very people that God wants you to throw mercy at with all your might. It's the only thing that really makes us different. Because, you know, we don't have a monopoly on good works. We don't have a monopoly on caring about poverty and, and justice issues. Other people do that. There are some brilliant charities in Hastings where I live that are really, really amazing and have been doing for decades what my church has only been doing probably for the last 10 years, you know. We haven't got the monopoly on it. But we can be those who will bring mercy after mercy after mercy and say, God's mercy for me is new every day, so I've got new mercy for you every day as well. I just want to finish by telling you a story and then we'll do a bit of Q&A, I think, if there's time. But a guy came to uh, my food bank last year and I wasn't in the food bank. I was in an office upstairs and... Our food bank manager came and got me and he said, look, we're really, really busy. We're totally overrun. We've never had so many people. It's chaotic in there and there's this guy with mental health problems and he is not coping. Can you come and take him into another place and spend a bit of time with him? I said, yeah, of course I can. In my head, I was like, oh, my goodness, I've got so much work to do. Like, I really didn't want to, but I was like, yeah, yeah, of course I can. I can give you about five minutes. Anyway, I come down and I take this guy and we go and sit. we got a coffee shop and we go and sit in this coffee shop and um, he says to me, I, I'm, I'm having a psychotic episode and if I have to hurt you to get help, I will. I was like, oh, hello. Uh, I said to him, hang on here a second, I'll be back in a minute. And I went back into the food bank and I said to the food bank manager, can someone else come and help me? Because, you know, I'm like, this isn't going to be five minutes and also I might get hurt. And I'm little... And I'm a woman, which I would never plead that card on any other place. But, you know, suddenly I was like, I might actually be in danger. I might need to just drop any feminist principles I have right now and just say that I need help. Sorry, that's a disgusting... I wouldn't have that. Can we take that out of the tape? That'd be aw- that's going to be awful. I regret saying that already. But I wanted help. 
Anyway, no one could help me. They were too busy. He was like, I'm really sorry. You're just going to have to do the best you can and we'll pray for you. Thanks. So I went back to this guy and as I sat there and I talked to him, he told me he had a hospital wristband on. So he was like, I've tried to go to the hospital because I know that I'm not safe. And he's like, I'm not safe to you and I'm not safe to me. And I've tried to get admitted and they won't admit me. And he started telling me about how in the past he'd threatened um, medical professionals. And so now they kind of, when they see him coming, a guard goes up. They don't want to help him. And he was telling me about the stuff he'd done and it was pretty bad. And I was thinking, I'm sitting there thinking, don't do any of what you've done to them to me. But, you know, I was just like trying to be gracious and compassionate and... I, I wanted, really wanted to get him help. He was homeless. He was 23, and he just had a jeans and hoodie on, and this was November. And I'm like, what's going to happen to him if he's got nowhere to stay? And he told me about how he'd been sofa surfing with his friends, and he'd stolen from every single one of them, so now no one would have him back. This wasn't a guy saying, everything's just happened to me, it's not, not my fault. He was telling me about all these things he'd done, and I was like, oh, man. If you hadn't done a few of these things, you, you might be all right. Anyway, it took me three hours of phone calls to try and get him help. And every time I phoned someone, they would tell me either we can't help him because he doesn't meet the criteria or we know him and we won't help him because of what's happened in the past. I tried healthcare professionals, the local council, housing associations, like basically I was calling around anyone I could think of and I got really good contacts in the local community and everyone was telling me we cannot or we won't help him. This guy, his only hope was the church. That's what struck me in that moment. His only hope, everyone else was like, we have shown you kindness and you, it's run out. Or we can't show you kindness because you don't meet the criteria. You know, the council said to me, if the temperature drops below freezing for the, the next three nights and we uh, reasonably believe he has slept out in it, then we have to help him legally. I was like, this guy will die. He will die. And they were like, sorry. We... And the woman said to me, she was really nice actually, but she was saying to me, I'm really sorry, but she was just like, we don't have flexibility. What really struck me is if we won't keep bringing mercy and keep bringing mercy and keep bringing mercy, then where will? There are some people that our society would write off in an instant. Their only hope is if we don't do the same thing. Their only hope is if we are so aware of the mercy that God has shown to us that we don't say, do you deserve my help or not? But we say, yeah, how can I show you the kindness of God today? going to finish there see before we go Q&A though would it be alright to pray I think why don't, if you basically feel like if any of this has resonated with you why don't you just stand and I'll just pray for us quickly if you think you know I, I want to be more merciful I want to be more compassionate and you know I know I'm, I'm talking to a room full of compassionate and merciful people but I also know my own heart and so I assume other people's hearts are like mine and we need help with this. Why don't you, if you're happy to like raise your hands or do whatever, whatever helps you engage with God, why don't you just do that and I'll just pray for us. Father, we are so grateful that you are a merciful God. We're so grateful that you have shown us mercy that we didn't deserve. Thank you that you haven't treated me as my sins deserved. Thank you that you have never said to me, you made your bed, go lie in it. Thank you that you have rescued us 
and shown us mercy, not because of who we were, but because of who you are. Thank you. It's all about you. And, and so we ask now, would you line our hearts up with yours? Where our compassion has run dry, where we can think of people who, you know, our compassion doesn't quite extend as far as them. Where we think about the people we're frustrated with because they keep making bad decision after bad decision. God, would you help us to have limitless mercy like you do? Would you help us to set up, be set apart from the world around us by being the mercy bringers, the compassion carriers, the ones who will go further than anyone else goes because we serve you and your wonderful God who has gone so far for us. Help our hearts, God. We need your Holy Spirit. We can't do it on our own. Amen. Okay, do you want to take your seats? Great. Thanks so much, Natalie. That was really good um, just to hear your challenge, but brought with grace and some of your stories. I know that there'll be people who've got questions for Natalie in the room, um, so I can come and take those and run around. And uh, one hand is up there already, and then um, I'll field them for you. So what do you actually do with that guy? Did you end up having to keep him in your church forever, or what happened? Oh, yeah, that, well, it's a really long story. We ended up, we've ended up helping him over months and months and months. But on that particular occasion, in the end, I called paramedics and they came. And um, that night he did get basically hospital. He was hospitalised. I was going to say hospital accommodation, but obviously that's not quite what it is. Um, but he's been back to us again and again and again, and we've helped him find accommodation. We've helped him kind of get back on his feet. But... Obviously, others have had to re-engage with him because he's got quite serious mental health problems. So we've sort of acted almost as a bit of a mediator between him and some of the other agencies, which I think has helped them to maybe step back into engaging with him. But it's an ongoing and, yeah, long-term... God, we're going to walk with him for a long journey, I'd imagine. Yeah, uh, first off, thank you so much uh, for what you said. Um, and I'm kind of bracing myself for the answer to this question, but uh, what do you say to people when, when you hear this thing about uh, it's not a good idea to give money to people because you don't know what they're going to spend it on? Um, I feel really challenged by God over this myself about what's my responsibility and what's someone else's responsibility. So when I see someone asking for money, you mean on the streets presumably... Um, I, my question, if, I'm, if my question is how can I show you the kindness of God today, the answer doesn't always have to be money. The answer could be I'll sit down and have a conversation with you. The answer could be um, like I'll get to know you. I'll build relationship. And I've got a few homeless guys in our um, community who I've got relationship with them now. I know them. I know what's going on in their lives. So, and sometimes just talking to someone actually can be worth way more than the pound or whatever we might drop in. But I'm not going to say that I won't give money. Because actually sometimes I'm in a hurry, sometimes all I've got is money to give. Sometimes actually I don't have, you know, if I'm running late, which I often am, then I haven't always got time to stop and have a conversation. And so I think, what is God asking of me? God's asking me to be generous, to be kind, to be compassionate. What the person does with that money, God is asking them about, not me. And this hit home for me, I'll tell you a little story, um, 
when I was preparing to write the book, uh, The Myth of the Undeserving Poor, I was um, actually visiting some friends in America, and I was saying to God, people had basically prophesied over me, when you go to America, God isn't just going to replenish and refresh you, he's going to be really talking to you about this book you're going to write. And I'm wandering around the streets of San Francisco, and he hasn't. And so I'm like, God, people prophesied it. I want it. Can I have it? You know, speak to me. And literally turn a corner, and there's a guy holding up a sign that says, Why lie? I want beer. I was like, all right, God. So why lie I want beer? I'm like, what do you do with that sign? So I went up to him, and I was like, hey, do you mind if I just have a chat with you? I like, your sign really intrigues me. Can I just talk to you? And I spent probably 20 minutes with this guy just hearing his story he was really open he was telling me that he'd been a crack addict since he was um about 16 or so I think he said um he looked like he was in his 50s but you know I couldn't necessarily tell um and he so he said he'd been addicted to crack cocaine um and he said he'd been in he'd had rehab uh, opportunities and he'd come back out and he'd got in with the same group of friends so every time he'd got clean he'd then gone back and Basically, he was telling me how it had wrecked every relationship in his life. Um, his parents, his uh, any kind of um, romantic relationship, his friendships. And he told me that he'd got a 16-year-old son at that point, but he was like, I've, I've not been in his life, most of his life, because you, you can't have a crack addict around a child. And so he was telling me all this, not asking for sympathy. Again, he was pretty open about the mistakes that he'd made himself. But he said, I've, I've kicked the crack a couple of years ago and now I'm an alcoholic and he said I know that people will just say well you've just substituted one poison for another but he said actually being an alcoholic is far less damaging to me and those around me than being a crack addict and he said because I'm now not a crack addict but an alcoholic I'm allowed supervised visits with my son and he was telling me that he's on a journey and where he's hoping to get to is being addiction-free, though he can't imagine it because that's not been the story of his life. But that's what he's heading towards, being addiction-free. So suddenly I'm hearing his story and I'm realising, you want beer, but you're, you're, you've come so far. You've come so far. And he said to me, basically, I'm going to stand here today until I get the $3 that I need for one beer, a bottle of beer, and um, a magic marker pen, because he's like, I've lost my pen since I wrote this sign and I'll need another one. So he was like, that's what I'm here till I get $3. And in that moment, I thought, am I really not going to give him $3? And sometimes I think it is just about when we hear people's stories, it gives us perspective and it gives God an opportunity not to deal with them, but to deal with us. And I think being really mindful of my own heart, like, God, what is it going on in my heart? Because when I ask the question, well, what are you going to spend this on? You know, or or I'm, I don't ask the person that, but I'm thinking it in my head. I think what God wants to challenge me on is my own attitudes, not the other person. So, yeah, I, don't, I hope that helps. We have got loads of questions. I've got a couple over here. Hello, I really enjoyed today. Thank you. Um, we were in a situation recently in a church setting, a rural church setting, and a gentleman presented himself to us afterwards. We were strangers to the church, so he was saying hello to us. And we briefly outlined what we did. And his response was, people on your estate should all be put in a workhouse and the homeless people that your husband is working with should be shot. At which point my husband reached out in a stealth ninja move and squeezed the back of my leg so that I couldn't respond <laughs> verbally except to go, oh, that's an interesting thought. What, what do you, where, 
what do you do? Because the response, it just, the anger rises up so quickly. How, how yeah. do you deal with those lovely Christians that have that view? I tried to keep a poker face while you were telling that story as an illustration of what I might do because I knew where you were going to go with it. But I've, it's really hard. I think for me, I am aware my biggest battle isn't with helping those in poverty now. You know, God's done a lot in my heart over the last few years and I, I feel like I've grown a lot in that. My biggest battle is my heart towards either the rich and powerful or other Christians, which and often that can be the same, obviously. And, and it is really hard, but I think it is remembering that everything you would say of someone who's homeless or who's um, struggling with addiction or who's trapped in debt is also true of the person who holds that view that you find so offensive. They're made in the image of God, even when you can't see it. I always think this. There, there are people around me. I can call them to mind. I won't say their names for the purpose of the tape, obviously, but, you know... Um, but there are people around me who I, I know I've got a real attitude problem to and I know I can barely see the image of God in them at all. But I always know that when I go and talk to God about that, he says, the problem isn't that my image isn't in them, the problem is your eyesight. It is. And, and so I'm trying to remind myself in those conversations all the time, what has God said? Be merciful just as your father is merciful. It doesn't mean I won't challenge their viewpoint. I absolutely will do that, but I want to know that I'm doing it from a place of mercy and grace and wanting to win them over, not from a place of anger or self-righteousness that I've understood something they haven't, or, you know, because that's an easy one to go with, isn't it? It's for me anyway. So it's really hard in the moment. I think those are the toughest conversations probably most of us will face is when other Christians have attitudes like that. And we're like, I don't even understand, you know, like you're reading the same Bible, you're worshipping the same God, but actually... We need to pray for people. We need to really pray. You know, um, 10 years ago in my church, we weren't doing masses to help those in poverty, even though I live in one of the most deprived parts of the country. We weren't doing a lot. And I started talking to my church leader about, I think we need to do more. Others in the church were too. It wasn't just me. But one of the things I did was I prayed for his heart. And he is now leading our church into a £300,000 building project where we're going to totally change our building to serve the poorest and the most vulnerable in our community. He has publicly stood up and said he would not... If you told him seven years ago that he would be leading our church into that, he would have said, it won't be me. If our church does that, it won't be me leading it. But I think... Obviously, I talk to him. Obviously, I challenge him. Obviously, I'm like, hey, have you read this bit of the Bible? I just stumbled across it. Or, you know, when you listen to a sermon and you're like, yeah, have you, are you hearing this? That? I've done all of that. But nothing has been as effective as praying regularly, consistently for his heart that God would do it. Because God can do what I can't. God can change people's hearts. We actually can't do that. God can do that. So as hard as it is in those moments, I'd say, take a deep breath. Be merciful and kind and compassionate. Challenge if you need to. If you can't, without just being angry, step away. Leave it for another day or another person or another moment, you know. But pray. Cool. We've got two more quick questions and then we're going to break for lunch. And then Natalie is going to bring more of her wisdom to us after that. But if we can keep them really short and concise, because I don't want to miss out you guys, but I know time is running out, that'd be great. 
I, I'm very aware of the tension between the helping individuals and the structural sort of injustice thing. And my, what I really wrestle with is where one seems in conflict with the other. So if I'm giving lots of sandwiches to people in central Manchester, I know at the back of my mind that, well, there's, there is something good happening in that moment when I'm doing that. But if that's keeping the people on the streets and supporting the spice dealers and also letting political structures off the hook about justice and structural injustice, because if we have an unlimited capacity for giving pound coins and sandwiches, isn't that letting the spice dealers and corrupt politicians off the hook? Yeah, no, I think that's a really, really good point, really valid challenge and I think actually as churches we're called to do two things one of them is to lay down our lives for the poorest and the marginalized and the other is speak truth to power and try and change the structures I don't think we do one without the other and I think the church has got better and better in the last decade at serving the poorest and still lags way behind in terms of influencing power my local MP is Amber Rudd work and pension secretary and I see that part of my role is meeting with her on a regular basis to talk to her now particularly now about universal credit and the harm we're seeing it causing uh, that five week delay from when you claim to when you get any money that's built into the system as a design a deliberate design but I would call it a design flaw they would say there's purpose to it um, and so challenging her directly personally on that I've um, spent a lot of my last few years working for the church building relationships with the chief of police uh, the leader of the fire service locally different head teachers uh, people who run housing associations in my area it, it, it's both things we, we must do both things um, so I think we are less equipped to, to influence power structures and actually that's where uh, Jubilee Plus who I work for we are trying to equip churches to do that as well um, if I had all day you know I often do seminars on actually how do you influence decision makers how do you influence your community that way as well but I haven't got time to give you a full answer um, but I would just say I completely agree with you and we have to do both things and it can't just be one part of it Thank you, and thank you for your book. Everybody should read it. Um, I was involved a couple of years ago working for Evangelical Alliance when we did a survey on Christians' attitudes to poverty. We, it was an online survey. We got about 1,500 responses. And we asked questions, what do you think are the causes of poverty? And we divided it between what do you think of the causes of poverty basically in the third world, developing world, and what are the causes of poverty here? And it was really fascinating that for the overseas poverty, people were sort of saying, it's things like corruption, it's things like unjust trade structures, it's, it's all those systematic structural things, the political things that are there. And they've got it, I think, because Tear Fund and Christian Aid and others have been going on it for a long time. And we had the Jubilee 2000 movement, Make Poverty History, all of that. But then what are the issues, of uh, what are the causes of poverty in the UK and it was almost a mirror image it was all to do with about the personal things it was drugs and alcohol it was sort of silly spending it was family breakdown it was very personalized and I think that's something that we need to bear in mind and maybe even repent of um, and I uh, just wonder if you have a comment on that 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think a lot of the work we have to do as well as Christians is actually challenging people around us on their viewpoint. And whether that's challenging the other Christians around us, graciously, or whether it's challenging um, non-Christians who are in positions of power but who totally buy into that narrative. So even some of the conversations I've had with people like Amber Rudd have been, you have got a particular narrative that you're telling that is not reflected in the reality of what we're seeing. And I think also, though, it is not being afraid to say sometimes people do get themselves in bad situations. I was in masses of debt, and the vast majority of it was that I didn't, I was not good with money. And I spent on things I shouldn't have been spending money on. And for me personally, I've been in that place of debt. But thankfully, merciful and kind people around me decided it was worth helping me out of debt rather than leaving me there and saying, well, it's your fault, sort yourself out, which was probably never going to happen, but by people helping me. So it's almost like counterintuitive to just say, let's just leave people stuck where they are then, because actually that's going to end up costing society more, irrespective of how they got into that situation. So I think for me it's um, not being afraid to own up and say, some people make bad choices. In fact, all of us do, don't we? All of us make bad choices. So it's not being afraid to admit that. It's not being afraid to say, actually, you know, if you come into um, the night shelter uh, I'm involved with or the food bank I'm involved with or the cap debt centre or whatever it might be, you, you are going to find people who fit the stereotype of what you believe. You, you will, because, because stereotypes don't just come out of nowhere. That there are people who but actually it's trying to say well what do we want to look like as a society I mean especially for the church but even when I'm talking to non-Christians what do you do you want to be in a society that says oh well you you made that situation so tough because which of us if we really think hasn't done that in some area of our lives or not and when we do it we want kindness in response we want compassion in response and I think most people Christian or not can understand it from that point of view and I think it's just trying to you know People's minds, that's the bit, it is the bit only God can do. People's minds aren't going to change overnight from those conversations. But actually, it might make them go away and think a bit differently and ponder a bit differently and give God space to do something a bit deeper. Great. Shall we show our appreciation to Natalie? Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out message.org.uk to find out how you can support or even get involved with one of our teams. 